Well, good morning to each of you. If you have your Bibles, you can turn or tap or swipe or whatever to 1 Samuel chapter 10. 1 Samuel chapter 10. So uh, Pastor Scott has been walking us through the book of Galatians, and then the rest of the elder team has been uh, slowly going through 1 Samuel. So that is where we find ourselves this morning. I uh, I need to give a thank you to Pastor Mark for just a splendid job of picking our songs this morning. Um, when I opened up the worship guide and uh, saw the first song, I was like, oh man, now that's fitting. Uh, and I got the second one, I thought, whoa, that's perfect. And I got the third one, um, oh my word, he has, I mean, he throws Luther in there. Um, and then I saw how he ended the thing. I thought, I think he's already read my sermon. So um, even better, I think he read the sermon passage. Um, so uh, that will definitely be better than the sermon. So thank you. I really appreciate the time and thought you put into uh, song selection. It is such a treat to all of us. All right, some handouts should be making their way around to you as different texts are quoted or whatever, pretty much every text that I'm going to quote is going to be in there, so uh, so you should have that. Um, because of the length of the text, I'm actually just going to read the very first verse. We will get to all of it uh, being read of chapter 10 by the time we're um, through together, God willing. So the very first verse of chapter 10, it says this, Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head, that his is Saul. So it says, Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be his prince over his people of Israel? Notice he didn't say king, right? He said what? Prince. Um, Be his prince over his people Israel. And shall... And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you shall save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. You're going to reign, and you're going to what? Save them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It's unbelievable that we have it. It's, it's, it's just crazy that it was written um, over 3,000 years ago, uh, this, these, these events happen, and we can talk about them with such freshness and clarity and correction this morning because your spirit, he has done a marvelous, marvelous work. He's preserved your word for your people across the generations, and we have it right in front of us. And not only that, it fits right where we are. It's an incredible thing. And so, Father, you, the very one who spoke us into being, you have used your word to create us, and now we pray this work of the third person of the Trinity, your Holy Spirit, that he will use your word to recreate us and make us into vessels that honor you. And in all of these things, we trust that his primary job, the thing that he's always about, is he's pointing us to our ultimate king, Jesus Christ, 
And over and over, he's telling our hearts, he alone reigns and he alone saves. And that's our prayer. Our prayer, Father, is that the work of the Spirit this morning will be to point our hearts to the work of the Son, Jesus Christ, that he alone reigns and that Jesus alone saves. We ask it. Amen. So, um, I don't like tomatoes. I probably mentioned that. Um, oddly enough, every once in a while, I am sent to the store to pick up a tomato. Typically, it's a last resort, but it does happen. When it happens, no one is more amused than me. The point of tomato shopping, as I understand it, is to go and to procure a good tomato. But I wouldn't know what a good tomato is, especially since I don't think there is such a thing as a good tomato. It's like the time Asher and I were at Lowe's and a snake crawled out while we were in the checkout line. And um, uh, a man said, uh, standing there, he said, don't worry, it's a good snake. And the lady behind him corrected him and said, ain't no good snake, but a dead snake. My mantra for tomato shopping might be, ain't no good tomato, but a crushed tomato. So needless to say, I, I got to confess, I'm not a good tomato shopper. Today, I pray that God, by his spirit, through his word, is going to show us that all of us hold one thing in common for sure. We are terrible shoppers for a king. We are all bad king shoppers. So the two main characters in our passage, one is Saul and one is Samuel. While it's hard to hear this a similarity in the English pronunciation of their names, they're actually really close in the uh, language they would have used, which is Hebrew. Um, so Saul, which has been something like Shoal, it means to say, to ask, or to declare, or even to demand. Where Samuel, it's a combination of something like Shoel, Saul, plus the Hebrew word for God, Elohim. So it's Shoel, LL, which we just say Samuel, which is to ask of God. But certainly that makes sense to Samuel. Remember how this book opened up. This book opened up with Hannah doing what? Asking God for a son. So it makes sense that Samuel's name is the one asked of from God, right? Well, guess what? Saul's name also perfectly fits his role. He isn't asked of so much from God as he is the one demanded by the people. So I think you can actually analyze this entire chapter uh, by considering the dichotomy of the one asked for from God versus the one demanded by the people. The ESV, I saw it gave the, the heading for this chapter is Saul anointed king. It's a fitting heading, very, very much so. But I believe maybe a more fitting heading would have been something like, you ask for it. That's really what Saul's name means. And man, is that fitting. Pastor Mark helped us see in chapter 9 that even though the people demanded a king, a king like all the other nations, God didn't fail to work out his perfect providence even in the midst of that. In spite of all of their disrespect, and it is massive, and all their disobedience, 
tons of it. God providentially worked his plan and his purpose, and he gave them Saul. So chapter 10 is our look at, here's what you get. So keep in mind, as we go through this, as we consider this chapter, that the people are getting the king they wanted. Let me say it again. Chapter 10 is what happens when we get the king they, that we want. This is the type of king that we all get when we go king shopping. While that idea of king shopping might seem a bit obtuse to us, um, I, I pray that God will show us that our hearts and our souls are always king shopping. Kings are desired because kings provide, they give provision, they give protection, and they give direction. So the Bible opens with the story of creation. And in these opening two chapters of Genesis, man finds himself, man and woman find themselves in perfect peace, living with none other than God as their king. They are perfectly protected, perfectly provided for, and have perfect direction. And then when sin entered, it entered how? It entered by questioning the goodness of the king. It resulted in separation from the king, and it left them, it left us with a constant searching for the very provision, the very protection, the very direction that sin had robbed us of. And as such, we are all, every one of our hearts, whether you're a believer or not, whether you know much about Christianity or not, I can promise you, you are on a constant hunt for a king. We want something or someone to provide, to protect, and to direct. And that can easily explain our fascination with many things. It can explain our fascination with politicians and political parties. It can explain our fascination with our finances and our careers. We want something to give us direction, something to provide protection, something that will promise us provision. All of these things have one thing in common. They'll all be sorts of kings that we all look for and find when we go looking for a king. And I believe that chapter 10 brings Saul as the enigmatic type of king that we find when we go looking for king. So let's start actually by reaching back a little bit into chapter 9. And I want us to walk together as we look at the five characteristics of what we find when we go king shopping. Five characteristics of what we find when we go king shopping. The first is when we go king shopping, the first characteristic of a king that we will find is a king that he's gonna always look the part. He's gonna be a bad shepherd. Chapter nine, verse one and two, this is how we're introduced to Saul. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of uh, Borkarath, the son of Aphioth, and a Benjamite, a man of wealth. He had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. 
Now you go all the way at the end of chapter 10, the final, a couple, some of the final verses there, verse 23 and 24. So that's how 9 introduces us to Saul. And this is kind of the, 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 the bookend of that. It says, then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, ah, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upwards. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. Saul looked the type. He looked like he could provide, looked to them like he could protect, and looked to him like he would give direction. The people wanted a king that they could see, a king like all the other nations, as they said in 1 Samuel 8, 20. And God answers them. He gives them Saul and names them, you ask for it. If nothing else, Saul sure looks the part. And yet while he looked apart, he was a poor, poor shepherd, meaning he wasn't a good shepherd. How do we know that? Right after we're told how good he looks, go back there to chapter 9, and here's what we learn about Saul. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you and arise, go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of uh, Shalisha, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but they did not find them. It's no accident that right after we meet Saul, who looks the part, the very next thing we find about him is his inability to return the lost donkeys. And it's no accident that the donkeys, they get returned but catch this, with no help of Saul whatsoever, Saul might have looked apart, but he didn't have what is necessary to care for donkeys. And he certainly doesn't have what is necessary to shepherd the flock of God's people. First warning to our weary souls, when we go king shopping, when we look for a king, we will find someone or something that will look the part. It will not be able to do all that it promises, but it will sure make us think that it can. So much of our obsession with politics is nothing short of us wanting to see before our eyes a person, a party that is going to make things right. But how many times do we get disappointed to realize that pail cannot hold that water? Our call when our kids were younger and and it, it would be time to get them to clean up. And I knew as a parent, I was supposed to get them to help clean up so they would learn the responsibility of it. But I gotta be honest, it was hard because they made it harder to do because they weren't good at it. Having them help clean up made cleaning up even harder. Friends, when we go looking for a king in a political party, it's like asking a three-year-old to reorganize the pantry. The problems of this world are so much larger than any po political party, a political philosophy, and certainly bigger than any one politician. When we king shop, we find kings who look the part. A politician can command our attention. They can demand even our optimism, but they cannot ever shepherd our souls. The second characteristic of a king 
that we will find if we go king shopping is that while our kings will be open to some spirituality, they will miss the major works of God. They will be open to spirituality, but they will miss the major works of God. Let's uh, look together here at 1 Samuel 9, 5 through 7. When they came to the land of Zuff, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, unless my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there's a man of God in this city, and, he, and he's a man who's held in honor. All that he says comes true, so now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Hmm. Then Saul said to his servant, But, you know, if we go, what can we bring to the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there's no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? All right, the name of Samuel would have been widely known throughout all of Israel. He was the main religious leader of the day, bar none. Saul's servant had to explain to Saul who Samuel was. Folks, this demonstrates Saul's complete disregard for the works and the things of God. Moreover, his insistence on taking a gift to show, uh, to, to be able to pay him for his services shows a disregard for the power and the ways of God. And you're going to see this pattern now repeated in the first 13 verses of chapter 10. Then Samuel took a flask. This is chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask and of oil and he poured it on his head and he kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you, Saul, to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin and Zelza, and they will uh, say to you, the donkeys, that you went to seek are found, and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys, and he's anxious about you, saying, what shall we do about my son? Then you shall go on from there further and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, another carrying a skin of wine, and they will greet you, and they're going to give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hands. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you'll meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place, with harp, tambourine, flute, lyre before them, prophesying, the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you'll prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now, when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I'm coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and sacrifices, peace offering seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do verse 9 when he turned back to leave Samuel God gave him another heart and all these signs came to pass that day when they came to Gibeah behold a group of prophets met him and the spirit of God rushed upon him and he prophesied among them and and when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets they said to one another what has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul 
among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, and, what, and who is their, their father? Meaning like their leader. Therefore, it, it became a proverb. Is Saul, is Saul among the prophets? So this text, I get it without diving into every single detail. It's a bit hard to understand because we've got a lot of different places. We've got Samuel telling them what he's going to do, and it splits off, and then he actually goes and does that. I gave you a map um, in your handout. I think we yeah, have it here too. So in, in the middle of the map, there's Gibeah, and that's Saul's hometown. So from there, Saul heads northwards up to Ramah. Ramah is where Samuel would have lived. And, and that's where um, Samuel, after the anointing, he, get, he tells Saul all that's about to happen. He tells him, he says, look, you're going to go back down south. Um, and, and when you head back down south, there's like a number three on your map. It's, you can see him going down south. When you head back down south, that's where you're going to be told that the donkeys are found. And then next in verse three, he tells him, and there you're going to meet three men. They're going to be on their way to head northeast to, uh, to sacrifice at Bethel, uh, the high place. Um, and, and they're going to give you food. So all these things are happening just telling Saul. It's a way of confirming to Saul that God is working. And, uh, and then he said, as, uh, as you get back near your home, that's Gibeah, then you're going to see a garrison of Philistines. Now, wait a second. Philistines, that's, that's arch enemy, especially in 1 Samuel times. That's, that's big time arch enemy. Uh, so these enemies are living in the land of Israel. Not only that, these enemies are living right near Saul's hometown. So Samuel isn't just pointing out a landmark like see the Philistines and then head left. He's making a point. And, and Samuel says that all this confirmation from God is, is a way of empowering him to believe that God can do whatever he wants. And then he goes even further. He says, and after you see that, you're going you're gonna to see a band of prophets and they will, you're going to be prophesying with them. And the language of verse 6 implies that God would give Saul strength and courage to prevail over the Philistines. How do I get that? Well, it says there in verse 6, Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you. Well, the very last time that we see that is just a few chapters back in the Bible, actually. It's back in Judges chapter 15 by a guy by the name of Samson. And he killed a thousand Philistines by himself. And, and it says that uh, there uh, that he killed them when the Spirit of the Lord, what? Rushed upon him. Samuel says that Saul will prophesy and know that God is with him and that that should empower him to then do what your hand finds to do. God is with you. He's not talking about prophesying. He's not talking about, hey, you're going to need God's help to do with your, uh, your hands what you need to do to be prophesying. That's not the, what he's talking about. He's talking about you are going to get God's help to go act upon the enemies of God. And keep all that in mind. Got to keep that in mind. So notice a couple of things. Saul accepts the idea of God working in his life. He seems to welcome it. Verse 9 even goes so far as to tell us that God gave him another heart. 
We see at the end of verse 9, all things that Samuel said would happen, those indeed happen. God is working in the life of Saul. And, and Saul is okay with that. Saul even met the prophets and prophesied with them. Still, while there are glimpses of God working in his life, it's clear that this is not normative for Saul, and it won't be normative for Saul. Most significantly is the reaction of his people. What happened when the people found out that Saul was prophesied? Saul? Saul? Saul's one of the prophets? It wasn't just said one time, it was said so often, it became a proverb among the people. You're going to see this pattern. And we don't have time to flesh this out, but you're going to see this over and over and over. It's going to be repeated with Saul over and over. He will not be opposed, wholly opposed to the things of God, but he will prove consistently ignorant of the ways of God. He is spiritual, but he lacks a fear of God. Friends, when we go king shopping, we often look for kings like Saul, spiritual, but not God-fearing. Here in the South, we are especially prone to this. Many of us are prone to trust in a king called nominal Christianity, Christianity in name only. Nominal Christianity, it certainly wants spirituality. It definitely wants spiritual experiences. And like Saul, nominal Christianity will encounter the things of God and nominal Christianity will encounter the people of God. Sadly, nominal Christianity will encounter the fullness of the things of God without taking seriously sin and a Savior. It doesn't take seriously the need for regularly hearing the Word of God. It doesn't take seriously the need to be committed to the people of God. It's spiritually devoid of the fear of of God. It's the type of king that we will inevitably find if we go shopping for a king. The third characteristic of a king we'll find if we go shopping for a king is a king that will not fight the enemies of God, but leave them in our midst. When Samuel, when Saul left Samuel, there's a sense of building excitement. We're about to see a Samson type event talking about the Spirit of the Lord rushing upon him. We get this feeling that he's, he's going to rush upon Saul. Saul is going to believe that he can do whatever God has put in his hand to do. And he's going to take out the Philistine garrison right there in his hometown. And then, so we get, everything happens in that story. If you go right back through what Saul Sam, or Samuel said Saul would do, you get all the stuff. He goes down, he finds out about the donkeys, he gets the bread, then he meets the people uh, on their way up, he gets all the gifts, he gets into his hometown, he does the prophesying. Then verse 13, when he had finished prophesying, now's the moment, we're going to go take out the Philistines, that's what's next in order. When he finished prophesying, catch this comma, he came to the high place. That's it. It's done. But, but Samuel described it as if he would prophesy, and then that would allow him to see that God is going to help him fight the enemies of God. He did the prophesy bit. He got, he got his spiritual experience in, and then, and then he went home. Meanwhile, the enemies of God stayed right where they were. 
Samuel had even planned a sacrifice after the victory. In verse 8, he tells them, Then, means after all that has happened, go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I'm coming down to you to offer burnt uh, offerings and, and sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you're going to wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. Never happened. No need for that. Why? Because the enemies of God weren't the slightest bit bothered. And they certainly were not removed. See, when we go king shopping, we'll return with kings who leave in place the enemy of God in our lives. For example, we often turn to the kings of vain pursuits, such as abusing drugs or alcohol or licentious living, unhelpful entertainment. These kings consume our time and energy and they offer us a temporary escape. But all the while, they allow the enemy of God, our, the chief enemy of God, our sin, to remain present and active in our lives. Instead of acting against our sin, they just welcome it to stay right where it is. The fourth characteristic of kings we will find if we go king shopping is they will be blind to kingdom priorities. Look at verses 14 through 16. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, where did you go? And he said, to see the donkey. <laughs> Sorry, this, this bit is hilarious to me. <laughs> to see the donkeys. And, and we saw they were not to be found. So we went to Samuel. Saul's uncle said, well, please tell me, what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, I did not tell him anything. <laughs> okay, okay. Saul gets home after this incredibly eventful trip. And Uncle Fish, I named him Uncle Fish. He's got a brother named Kish. I think it rhymes. He asks a lot of questions. He's fishing. He's Uncle Fish. So he gets home, and Uncle Fish asks him how the trip went. Saul's response, Prophet Samuel found the donkeys. What? You're talking about burying lead? You forgot to mention the part about he anointed you king over Israel. Oh, the text aptly diagnoses the problem. But about the matter of the kingdom, he did not tell him anything. It's as if the import of what happened, what this might mean for the kingdom of God, completely went over the head of Saul. Oh, but brothers and sisters, this is indicative of the kings we find when we go king shopping. We're so prone to find kings in our financial lives that completely miss the import of the kingdom of God. As if our spiritual lives can be completely separated from our financial decisions. If our financial lives were to have a conversation, if they could be Uncle Fish for a second, often might it sound like a chat like this. I got paid. I bought some stuff. I bought some more stuff. I saved some stuff. But about the matter of the kingdom, ah, it was not spoken. 
The fifth characteristic of kings that we will find if we go king shopping is that they will not face the judgment of God. They will hide from it. 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 17. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mitzpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought you up, Israel, out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all of your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Okay. Not what we saw coming. We're sort of expecting the coronation address. Here's your king, right? Something like that, but we don't get that at all. Instead, we get a good old-fashioned thrashing. Summary of verses 17 through 19. Okay, you stubborn, ungrateful, ignorant children, you want to reject the only good king on planet Earth who picked you for himself and instead go get a king like all the other bad kings? Okay, well then line up. Things are sounding pretty rough at the end of verse 19. Whoa, 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 wait till you get to verse 20 and 21. Oh boy, this gets serious in a hurry. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. What? Yep. He brought the tribe of Benjamin nearby its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. Now, this may not yet feel scary to you, but let me tell you, there was a lot of people very scared at this moment. The only other occurrence like this in Scripture we find in Joshua chapter 7. That's when Achan, remember, he steals something, the contraband, he takes a contraband he wasn't supposed to take, and God routes them uh, before the enemy, and he brings them all back, and he says, line them up. Line them up, lot by lot. We're going tribe by tribe. We're going clan by clan. So imagine this. You got poor Saul. Poor guy, we've already said he's, he's pretty ignorant of the things of God. All he knows is Samuel's pretty upset, or God is pretty upset, according to the words of Samuel, about this idea of a king. He knows supposedly he's the guy, and now we're lining up tribe by tribe, lot by lot. And so it says they got the tribe of Benjamin. Saul's going, that's my tribe. Then they get down to the clan of the Matrites. Whoa, whoa, that's my, that's my family. Uh-oh. Things are not looking good. And then the end of verse 21, and Saul, the son of Kish, uh-oh, he's taken by Lot. But when they sought him, oh, he could not be found. I bet not. If you're Saul, what are you going to do? Achan? They took Achan. They took his family. They stoned him, and they took all of his family and all of his possessions, and they burned him. You think Saul's sticking around? No, he's hiding with the baggage. Verse 
22, the irony of this is stunning and hilarious. So you got the people of God lined up to get the king they've asked for. They've asked for this king. We want him. God has given it to him. Hold on. This can't get any better. Here's your introduction, verse 22. They ask again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, who had to tell them where their king is? Who had to show it to them? The king they rejected. Behold, you can just see her. Just hear, ah, just Yahweh. I mean, that is Lord in all caps. And the Lord said, Yahweh has to point him out. Behold, he's hidden himself among the baggage. Saul saw the judgment of God coming, and he wanted not a thing to do with it. Nothing. He ran from it. He hid from it. The scariest thing about the kings that we find when we go king shopping is that none of them will face the judgment of God for us. Every one of us has sinned and faces the judgment of God. That judgment has got to be faced. That judgment has got to be dealt with. Many will turn to religious observance or activity. They'll even turn to strict religion or law keeping. But that is just another king we can find. It might bring us temporary direction and organization. It cannot deal with the judgment of God. When religious rule keeping faces the presence of a holy God, it will run and hide in embarrassment because there is no way it could solve the problem of divine judgment. It's a long story short, Saul is the emblematic figure of the type of king we will find if we go looking for a king. We stink at king shopping. Well, now that sounds like a bad thing. We all need a king, says you. And we can't find a king, says you. If you can feel those two realities in your heart, then you are ready for the gospel of Jesus Christ to land. I need a king, but I can't find a king. One of the amazing things about how 9 and 10 lay out is it is laid out to show us the antithesis of this king that we could find versus the two future kings of God, King David and King Jesus. These two kings have many things in common, but most especially, catch this, neither of these kings was found through king shopping. Each of these kings, King David and King Jesus, they are both given by God to his people when they didn't Ask for him. When Saul still had about 10 years remaining as king, God moved Samuel to go anoint a teenage boy named David. All God's doing. It's all God's mercy. And some 1,000 years later, God repeated this kindness when he sent his son, King Jesus, into our darkness, and the King of Kings came forth. I want you to quickly consider, as we walk back through these together, David and Jesus compared to the kings we find when we shop for a king. First of all, we said that the kings we will find always look the part 
but are bad shepherds. Well, listen to the first verses as we introduce King David. And I'm going to list for you here five characteristics of the kings that we need. 1 Samuel 16, verse 11. Then Samuel said to Jesse, um, are all your sons here? And he said, well, uh, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, <laughs> he's, catch this, keeping sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes. Where was King David? When we find him, he's keeping sheep. We meet Saul losing donkeys. We meet David tending the sheep. Jesse didn't even think to offer De uh, David up as an option. Just verses prior, God had warned Samuel, don't look at his height. Don't look at his stature. God shops with a completely different lens. God looks at the heart. Then we meet David and we are told that he has pretty eyes and he's handsome. Well, basically what we're told is he looks like a good shepherd boy, but probably not king material. David would have never been chosen if they were king shopping. Like David, King Jesus, Isaiah, chapter 53, verse 1, it tells us that he is nothing to behold in terms of outward appearance. In other words, if you people go king shopping, you're never picking this guy. You'll look right over this Jesus of Nazareth. You'll never pick him. And all the while, he is the amazing shepherd we need. As he describes in John 10, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. And ironically, as Jesus faces the final week of his life, he doesn't lose his donkey. <laughs> oh, there's a sweet dichotomy here, isn't there? But he finds somebody else's donkey so that he can ride it in to town. The second thing about the king that we need is the king that we need will always do the works of God. The second characteristic of the king we need is that he will always do the work of God. David is described in 1 Samuel 13, 14 as a man after God's own heart. When Saul was rejected by God, his servants recommended shepherd boy David to come play music for him. Here's how they describe David. A man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Can there be better evidence of the movement of God in David's life than the over six dozen psalms proclaiming the ways and the works of God that he wrote? It's an obvious understatement speaking of Jesus, to say that he understood the priorities of God, the ways of God. He is the work of God, says John in his opening declaration, the first five chapters of John 1. In the beginning was the Word. The kings we find, they will not fight the enemies of God, but they'll lead them in our midst. The third characteristic of the king that we need. The third characteristic is the king that we need will fight the enemies of God for us and remove them from our lives. Saul ran from the enemies of God. Good, gracious, not David. Go read for yourself this afternoon, 1 Samuel 17. 
the account of David and Goliath. It has to be one of the most big God passages in all the Scripture. While Saul left the Philistines parked down the street, David took it to the enemy, believing God would deliver them. What about Jesus when it comes to dealing with the enemies of God? Well, ask the Apostle Peter about the time he suggested that Jesus should maybe bypass the enemy of God, the cross. What did Jesus tell him? Get behind me, Satan. is recorded in Matthew 16. Uh, the king we need doesn't bypass the enemies of God. He takes them on. The kings that we find, they're going to be blind to kingdom priorities. And that lays the fourth characteristic of the king that we need. The king that we need will live for and by kingdom priorities. The Davidic covenant, the covenant with David, is given to us in 2 Samuel 7. Beautiful. You can go back and read. I gave you the text for all of this. What brought that about? David looked around and saw that he was in a house, a beautiful house, and he thought it crazy that God was dwelling in a tent, the tabernacle. Well, while Saul could only think of returned donkeys, David constantly saw things through the lens of God's kingdom. Jesus shows his vast kingdom vision and focus in many ways, but most especially in the temptation accounts. Matthew chapter 4 records this over and over. Jesus is tempted and he constantly turns the focus away from these things here and now and turns them to the priorities of the kingdom of God. And finally... See, the kings that we find, they will always run away from the judgment of God. But not the king we need. The king we need will not hide from the judgment of God, but will face the judgment of God. Unlike King Jesus, King David was by no means a perfect man. In 2 Samuel 24, we see him facing down the judgment of God over his sin of counting the people. It's a stunning passage. As the judgment of God barrels down on the people of God, David runs to the threshing floor of Aruna and, and, he, and he builds an altar there to sacrifice to God. And it says that God saw this and he relented. The judgment of God is pouring down on the people and David runs and builds a sacrifice to God to say, please stop it. Stop this judgment on the people. And just as cool as the Bible could be, you can go from where that threshing floor was and a stone's throw away, a thousand years later, there will be dug into the ground a nasty Roman cross. And on there, the King of Kings will stare down the judgment of God. And He doesn't hide. He's fully exposed and He takes it on. And all the hiding is me and you behind the cross. The judgment of God is met. That is the king we need. We need a king. Our souls know we need a king. But we cannot find a king if we shop for one because we don't have a clue what a good king looks like until God reveals them. So the bad news is that we all need a good king and none of us can find one. But the gospel, the gospel is the amazing news that our good king found us 
He will chase you down. He'll chase you down with mercy and grace. The Father sent His Son as the good King Jesus to save us. He sent His Spirit as the gracious helper to open our eyes to see the good King when He comes. And otherwise, we would pass Him by. Soul, behold your King. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. It leaves me dumbfounded as to how beautiful it is. I know my heart, and I know I can't find a king on my own. I can lose priorities and vision in a blink of an eye. Thank you for your incredible kindness to us, that through no efforts of our own, through no merit of our own, you gave us King Jesus. You sent your Son. And he will save us. And he's such a good king. Unite our heart to fear your name. And by your spirit, let us love and adore King Jesus. Amen.